In the name of the one holy and living God. Amen. Amen. I trust a few of you have been through confirmation class in the dawn of time. I want to remind you of something you might have learned. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open up wide and see all the people, right? What's wrong with that? Here's the building, here's the steeple, open up wide and see the church. Today we have an auspicious set of readings to begin in a congregation. First of all, my feet aren't that good looking. And they tried to kill off the dreamer in the first lesson. And then we have the disciples caught in a boat in a windstorm. One could make lots of jokes. You'll learn soon enough that I have a very odd sense of humor, so we'll move away from that quickly. Who are we as the people of God? In today's gospel, we see in the boat the seeds of the church. The disciples are caught in a windstorm, and a number of things happen. Why don't you look up for a moment, seriously, at the ceiling. One of the things that churches incorporate in their architecture, and it's ironic, is a capsized boat. So the worst that could happen has already happened. The boat has capsized. (laughs) I want you to think a little bit about how this story unfolds in the gospel. Think about it for a moment. It might be helpful to remember that preceding this story are two big events. John has been beheaded and the feeding of 5,000. Jesus is toast. Whatever ounces of extroversion he might have had are gone. Now, I don't know whether Jesus was an extrovert or an introvert, but he hightails it to a mountain to pray, to recharge his batteries, and he orders the disciples into the boat and then abandons them. Yea, Jesus. How often do we think of Jesus as meek and mild? Most of the time. Jesus didn't get killed because he was meek and mild, by the way. One of my favorite memes that I've seen out there in the universe is, just remember, making a a cord of whips and overturning a table is a possibility when you ask, what would Jesus do? (laughs) Okay, let's look at this gospel a little more closely. Jesus orders them into the boat. Right? He goes off. And the literal translation of the wind is it's tormenting them. And they're afraid. Jesus says to them, probably not this way, it's probably Aramaic, but he says, Mephobu, fear not. How many other times do you remember hearing that? Lots of times, like the Annunciation to Mary, like the Resurrection over and over and over again. There's a Jungian analyst by the name of Ann Ulanoff, and you can find this particular talk on the Trinity website if you decide you want to listen to it. She has this premise that the spiritual life begins with fear. 
not usually what we think of on the front end. But if we attend to fear, that is the place that the spiritual life begins, those things that we are afraid of. That's where we catch the disciples, in the middle of them being terrified. And Jesus comes to them across the water. Just kind of weird if we admit that. It's weird. How does that work? Exactly. Now, Matthew is playing with a couple of things that are worth noting. In Hebrew cosmology, the water is synonymous with chaos. There is a glass dome of sorts, a ceiling to the heavens, that holds the waters of chaos back. So anytime you run into water, you've got this idea that the, that the created order is possibly threatened. And as you know, water is a multivalent symbol. Water gives us life. Water can kill us. Two things. So all that's under the surface in this story. And you've got the disciples in the boat, and they're afraid the boat's going to go down. And then they've got this weird thing. Now, it's not particularly unusual that they think, would think Jesus was a ghost. Remember, John the Baptist has just been... And then he says something really weird to them. Take heart, or take courage. It is I. Sounds a little jaunty, doesn't it? It is I. It is I. <laughs> Reminds me of the Grey Poupon commercial. <laughs> it is I. <laughs> I don't know why it reminds me of the Great Poupon commercial, by the way, but it does. What's hidden in that language is something that you don't get in the English. It's the name of God. I am. He's making an assertion there, and people who heard that story in the day would have known that. Take heart, take courage. The number of times the word heart comes up in Matthew's Gospel over and over and over again. So Peter says, if you command me, I will come to you on the water. It's working fine until what happens? Peter gets distracted by the wind. Now remember again, the early church would have heard this story as them, as the church. Why did you think the early church kept some of these stories? And for that matter, why do they have four Gospels? Well, here's my little theory. I'll do, do it quickly. The four Gospels are like the stories you tell about Thanksgiving, if you have brothers and sisters. Everybody has a slightly different story about what, hap- what mother did at Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I have six brothers and sisters, so we have six versions. <laughs> There's a story I can't tell from what is acting as the pulpit about Thanksgiving a few years ago. I won't tell you now. (laughs) So we have this memory book, this gallery, if you will, of memories that the early church decided upon, decided to keep. There are things they left out, too, on purpose. The thing called the canon of Scripture. Canon is just a fancy word for measure. It was the length of the king's arm from here to here. So they decided that these stories were normative for their life and ministry. They were memory books. They were the things that they remembered about what formed them. 
okay? Peter gets out of the boat. He's walking on the water, and he gets distracted. One of the other things to know about the story is when they say look, it's just not glancing, it's perceiving. It's another thing we lose in English is the nuance. It is seeing into the spiritual reality of what they're looking at. In biblical parlance, to behold, which is the word that's being used, I like the older version, behold versus see, is to see something in its totality, to see into its essence. Use this as an analogy. That person that you love most in life, the things you know about them that aren't physical and tangible, that's a bit like what beholding something is, to see that reality of the person. Okay, Peter's trucking across the water, he gets distracted takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to sink. Now, you don't need to be a preacher to know what that might say to the church, our life, and ministry. Over and over again as a body, we get distracted. Right one, right two, parish suppers, those phone calls you get. No one ever calls with good news in the parish, by the way. You know that? <laughs> when was the last time someone got on the, fo- on the phone and said, My God! Those cookies were fabulous. <laughs> There's a reason for that. This part of our brain, the reptilian part of our brain, does a quick response to threat. We pay more attention to threat than we do comfort. It's a survival mechanism. It's part of the reason Peter gets distracted is threat. So, the church we live in now is living a fantasy that we've inherited over the centuries. A fantasy called Christendom. We no longer have the market share. I don't need to tell you this. I'm just stating the obvious. And we've inherited a bunch of assumptions about what the church is. I want to push on one for the moment. I would say it's fair to say that most of us think of church as a glass that, get, that you fill In other words, you come, you get filled up, you leave, right? That's not how the early church thought about their life and ministry. In fact, it's the exact opposite. First of all, the church was illegal. Being a member of the church could kill you. It was secret. And it was countercultural. You couldn't be an actor or a soldier and be a Christian. Not for the obvious reasons. There, There were things that were a problem. A soldier in those days had to sacrifice to the god Mars. That's idolatry. And actors and actresses engaged in cult prostitution on stage. Again, in worshiping a god. You can tell that at some cocktail party you go to. They'll love it. We are so embedded in the culture at the moment that we don't see the things that drive us. The early church was countercultural. Now, we no longer have the market share. And paradoxically, that's a gift. In the 50s and 60s, I'm a lifelong Episcopalian. I remember at least the beginning of the 60s. <laughs> In the 50s and 60s, you went to church because you should. None of you are here this morning for that reason. That's a gift. You're here because you chose to be here. That means we start out, even though we're smaller, with a different set of authenticity. 
In the early 60s, I got dragged to church wearing a little ice cream suit, and my hair was even shorter than it is now. And you did it because you did it. Now we choose. The very first act of worship is the assembly, assembling, manifesting the body of Christ, showing up. And the biggest thing that we can do for St. James, not because I'm here, but because you're here, is show up. The average person in the U.S. goes to church once a month, whether they need to or not. What's the first thing that people ask for in church? A sense of community, right? That, how can you do that if you're only there once a month? I don't say that to challenge, I say that to point out the obvious. That if you want to grow as a body, you've got to show up. That part belongs to you. I can't make you do that, nor would I make you do that if I could. Because that's bad. The willing offering of time and energy is good. So, in the early church, they had this paradoxical notion. Benedict says this much later. The stranger is to be welcomed as Christ himself. The agent of renewal in the early church was the person they didn't know. Now, I have this theory about community life. This is a giant rock tumbler we're sitting in. I don't know if any of you played with that as kids, where you take semi-precious stones, you throw them in this thing, and it goes round and round and round and round, and they come out polished. That's what we're doing here. There's also something else about community life. This is a school for charity. Actually, it should be of charity, not for charity. Caritas, love. This is a place where we learn to love people we don't necessarily like. And our salvation is bound up with each other's. We need each other for that very reason. Nowhere else in our society, and this is where we are countercultural, nowhere else in our society do we belong to communities that are diverse anymore. We filter our news, we go to the things we like, we talk to the people we like, we belong to the political parties we like, across the board. This is the only place where we can learn to be in community with people who may have radically different ideas than we do. And that's okay. I have another theory about community life, and I have to say this carefully. It's the one jerk in, one jerk out community, rule of community life. If someone I don't like leaves the community, someone I don't like more will take their place. And that's all about me. And that's a gift. How do we learn to grow in love if we're all of one like mind about everything? The disciples don't experience Jesus in the safety of the upper room. They don't experience Jesus sitting on the lakeshore. It's out in the middle of things. It's important to remember the word apostle wasn't the title. We think of it as the apostles, the title. It means one sent. So I want you to think and pray about some of this stuff. St. James is an incredibly rich place. I have done seven parishes. This is number seven. 
I've walked into places where they didn't have a computer, they didn't have an office system, they didn't have an organ, they didn't have anyone who knew how to do anything. Your bench strength is amazing here. Now, sure, you'd like more people. I know that. Everyone wants more people in the church. They especially want kids. But you've got some incredibly talented people here. Incredibly talented. So where might God be leading us in this capsized boat? I mean, the worst has already happened, so... There's a book called Full Catastrophe Living. It's already happened. So... Let's have some fun. Let's get at it. Amen.